Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing. Like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Perfect. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And today we're bringing you a tragically Neil Free movie episode Aww. about the fifth movie in the Harry Potter franchise, 2007's Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Don't worry, our beloved guy with a film degree will be back for a special Q&A mini-sode. But between his wedding and Marcel's baby, scheduling has gotten complicated. You can only really count on spinsters like yours truly to keep the ship of podcasting pointed toward the North Star of feminism. But before we indulge in more inexplicable nautical metaphors, let's take... A quick peek at the IMDb synopsis to remind ourselves what this movie is all about. With their warning about Lord Voldemort's return scoffed at, Harry and Dumbledore are targeted by the wizard authorities as an authoritarian bureaucrat slowly seizes power at Hogwarts. Hey Marcel, you know what's just about the only thing more exciting than authoritarian bureaucrats? Professor time with Marcel! Our increasingly brief discussion of adaptation theory and then long list of complaints about what they changed. And before we start this one, I want to draw attention to a point that listener and fellow badass lady scholar Sarah Galletly pointed out on Twitter, which is something importantly different about this movie. Uh, it is apparently the only one adapted by screenwriter Michael Goldenberg. So I guess the rest of the movies were all adapted by the same guy. I don't know who. Sarah said who it was in the tweet, but yeah. I, neither of us can remember. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, she absolutely did. I mean, Sarah knows. If you want to know, just ask Sarah. Um, and it is also, importantly, the first of the David Yates directed mm-hmm. movies, right? And the, yes. the remaining movies in the series will all be directed by him. So we're going to be paying particular attention to what is different about this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, uh, I believe Professor Marcel had a few points to make about uh, adaptation in this movie. Yeah, I do. One of the things that I'd like to just tackle first So the IMDb description says that Harry and Dumbledore are targeted by the wizard authorities. And I think that that gets really downplayed in the, in the film version, like in the, the book, it's a really major plot point that Harry is being portrayed as crazy. And they do various things to represent that in the movie visually more than plot wise with the, the newspapers that turn the word Potter into plotter, which is very cute. But in terms of like the overall impact that that has on Harry, you don't really get a sense of that. So I would say that in in terms of the IMDb description, that's not super, it's not a super big part of this movie. That's that. What I would like to say about this movie um, in terms of being an adaptation is that of all of the movies that we've seen so far, this is the only one that holds together as a coherent independent narrative and one of the main tenets of an adaptation is that it needs to stand on its own so like adaptations are always going to be enjoyable in particular ways by people who are familiar with the source materials but nevertheless an adaptation needs to be consumable by someone who isn't familiar with any of those source materials and a lot of the previous movies are nonsense Mm -hmm. if you've never read the books And this one, sure, there are things that if you haven't read the books, you will probably miss, but it still holds together as a story with a beginning and a middle and an end and like a coherent through line that even though there's a lot of stuff missing from the text that maybe some viewers who are dedicated readers might find devastating, those cuts serve a really solid purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the points that you just made is that, you know, adaptations might still have sort of a special appeal to um, people who read the originals. And sometimes I feel that what ends up happening with strong adaptations is that they're actually sacrifice something of appeal to mm-hmm. original fans for the sake of creating an adaptation that will stand on, on its own. Right. Mm-hmm. So so, you know, book four for ex- or movie four, for example, which we described as being like just unwatchable nonsense, yeah. um, has a lot more of the book in it mm-hmm. um, and feels much more like it was made for readers of the book. Um, whereas this one, I think what really characterizes it is that it's the first movie to really ruthlessly slice away mm-hmm. at its source material in the interest of creating Um, an actually coherent standalone narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think if you are the kind of reader who wants a particular kind of faithfulness on the part of your adaptation, this movie might actually really disappoint you, which I think leads to the important question of what it is that makes an adaptation faithful. Yeah. Yeah. When we talk about a faithful adaptation, what is it that we mean? Because so, especially when we're talking about taking a written text and putting it into a visual medium, There's a lot of stuff there that needs to get translated from one genre to another. And if we think about what makes a faithful adaptation, are we talking about 
the overall storyline and its narrative continuity? Are we talking about the characters and how well the actors who are playing those characters represent the characters that we know from the books? Are we talking about the world that's being built in one versus the other? Like there's a lot of stuff that we could be talking about and not everything is going to make that transition very smoothly and some things movies just do better than books. And sometimes you change the plot a little bit and it actually works really well. So Hannah, what do you think? Well, for one thing, I sort of phased out for a minute while you were talking there because I started thinking about how satisfying a Game of Thrones style HBO television adaptation of Harry Potter would be oh, yeah. um, that could dedicate an entire season of television to each book mm-hmm. and so could play out all of these storylines with much more detail and could have, you know, like a bottle episode that was just about Neville, mm-hmm. just Neville in Herbology class and just like that delved into his backstory and just mm-hmm. like the richness that you could get out of a, a different genre of adaptation. Mm-hmm. And I know that the movies are still really recent, but considering this is the golden age of television, maybe they should just go ahead and do that right now. Yeah. I actually remember having a conversation. I don't remember where we were at with the films being released, but I had this conversation with two friends of mine about how satisfying an HBO type series or maybe a BBC series called Hogwarts would be. And it was all, it would be all about the professors and their lives. And you would get sort of snippets of what's happening with the students, including the famous ones like Harry and Hermione and Ron, but they would just be kind of background noise and you would get really deeply into the lives of the profs. And it was such a glorious fantasy to hold. This is probably unlikely given, I think, the usual age of fan fiction writers. But listeners, if there's any good fan fiction out there written from the perspective of the professors, like good, I would like to know about it. Because mm. <laughs> I like stories about grown-ups. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, on the on the subject of adaptation and what, what this one does well, you know, this is a big book. Um, mm-hmm. And big books have lots of themes. And there's a lot of really sort of important through lines that intersect in interesting ways in the book that it took us like four hours of conversation to (laughs) even begin to touch on. And I think that you can get the theme of this movie in a single sentence, which is we are stronger when we work together, right? This is about the dangers of isolation, the dangers of emotional isolation, about how community and love and relationships make us stronger, better people, Mm -hmm. right? It focuses in on the storylines that emphasize that theme and quite ruthlessly cuts out the storylines that do not emphasize that. And as a result, it has this really coherent arch, right? Which is, you know, we see Harry at the beginning and he's isolated and he's lonely and he's surrounded by people who don't understand him. And then he, you know, he comes into the environment of Hogwarts, which has changed because nobody trusts him anymore. And, you know, Luna makes the suggestion, which is that Voldemort might be doing this intentionally because it's divide and conquer, right? It's always Mm -hmm. easier to pick off your enemies when they're when they're isolated. And Luna as the outsider character becomes this sort of sage figure who teaches Harry the value of community, overcoming difference, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have sort of Harry going back and forth between trusting his friends and cutting his friends out, 
the value of Dumbledore's army is that it's the students coming together against diversity, whereas the primary thing that Umbridge is trying to do is divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the story, Harry overcomes Voldemort through memories of loving his friends and family, Mm -hmm. right? So it's it's very tidy in that way. Um, and we made a list, a not comprehensive list of things that were cut out um, <laughs> that I think might be worth running through really quickly mm-hmm. just to give a sense of the extremity of the slashing yeah. that went into creating this movie, right? So um, Quidditch is gone entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the backstory about and um, time spent getting to know the Order of the Phoenix after whom the, mo- the <laughs> bookend movie are named, they're mostly gone. All of the scenes that are set at the hospital, mm-hmm. including the scene where we re-encounter Lockhart and the scene where we meet Neville's parents, the vast majority of the occlumency lessons mm-hmm. and what they involve and the pensive and the majority of that memory, um, the owls, mm-hmm. all of the scenes of students taking the owls, the importance of the owls and the fact that they're connected to career choices and students having to start to think about what they want to be when they grow up, the idea of being an or. The backstory of Trelawney, the fact that she's the person who made the prophecy and that that's the reason that Dumbledore hired her and the Mm -hmm. reason that she has been at Hogwarts this entire time. Almost all of the stuff about McGonagall, uh, her standing up to Umbridge, the fact that she then gets attacked, her hospitalization, the scenes of the teachers uniting and rejecting Umbridge and sort of creating chaos after Dumbledore is gone, Um, Haggard's whole backstory with what happens with the giants... The whole storyline about Sirius treating Harry inappropriately and treating him like he's a peer instead of like he's a child, Dobby, gone, almost all of Creature, Mm -hmm. and the importance of Creature is gone. The fact that Creature is the one who betrays Sirius and that Sirius's mistreatment of Creature was what led to his downfall, gone. Mm -hmm. Dumbledore's confession to Harry at the end where he talks through you know, the knowledge he's had all along and the way that he's been treating Harry is mm. gone. All of the gender stuff that was so important to our discussion about the Order of the Phoenix when we were talking about the books, that's all gone. All gone. So all of the stuff about Sirius being like a broody, miserable sack of shit because yeah. he's stuck at home needing to do the cleaning, which is exactly what Molly Weasley has to do all the time. That's yeah. just gone. Sirius actually isn't like a self-indulgent sack of shit in this no, movie. Sirius isn't moody. All that Sirius does is lurk in doorways wearing a velvet smoking jacket making sex eyes at Harry, which we will talk about in a later segment. (laughs) So you would think that with this huge list of the shit that they cut out, Mm -hmm. almost all of which was the stuff that was central to our discussion of the books, I think you would think that we would be a little grumpier about this adaptation, but I think that we're on the same page in the sense that we both agree that this is the strongest adaptation yet. So why do you think that is, that it took out almost everything we thought was important about the book? I think that that's just what a film adaptation has to do. I think that this is the first the first screenwriter that we've had who is like, well, all that stuff is good for the books, but this is a movie. This isn't just the book on screen. So I'm going to make a movie and here is the story that this movie is going to tell and i mean the thing is that if you have read the books you get little snippets of these other things like all of the things that we listed you get snippets of except for quidditch there's literally no quidditch there's (laughs) no reference if this was the first one you watched you would not know quidditch existed in this world (laughs) no they're just uh, nothing not a thing 
to be honest, the reason why I'm really into this adaptation is because it just does such a great job of being a movie instead of trying to be the book on film. And I, I remember when I first saw this in theaters uh, right after the seventh book had come out, I remember hating it. And I think it's because I had just finished reading the seventh book. I was really invested in the textual narrative story. Textual narrative story? That's, I feel like that's maybe sure, redundant, but like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the textual narrative story. And I was really bummed out by this by this film. And I think it might have been because of what we were saying. With all these things that were cut out, I didn't feel like it was a faithful adaptation. But looking at it now as somebody who understands that adaptations are different, they're yeah. just different universes, I think this one's great. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And with all that said, I have one point of complaint. Okay. Right? And it's one point of adaptation. That I think the vast majority of the choices that they make... I stand behind. I think that it tells a good story. I think it makes a very watchable movie that convincingly demonstrates like a really key thing about the way that power is moving in this universe and the way that it affects people, Mm -hmm. the importance of education in what kind of world we're going to imagine. I think all of this stuff comes through beautifully. I have a real issue with the shifts in the story of Grop. And that is because Grop is only there for a couple of minutes. I'm not even sure why he's there at all. Um, I think you could have safely just cut him out entirely. I talked quite a bit in the book about how, or in our discussions of the book about how I thought Grop as a character in the confrontation with the giants in general was an interesting lesson about the attempt to form relationships through divides of difference, right? Mm -hmm. And that the giants are these sort of really different characters and that Hagrid is working really hard to attempt to form an emotional bond with his brother through this like really substantial cultural difference and it seems hopeless to everybody right everybody's really dismissive of this 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 attempt that Hagrid is making and then there's that beautiful scene where they're in the forest and Grop recognizes Hermione Mm -hmm. right and it sort of suggests something to you about the fact that you know, there is this possibility of making connection. Um, and it's not like Grop has been sort of tamed into the normative order of the story. He still remains really other, mm-hmm. but he's sort of, you know, you can have that otherness at the same time as some level of connection. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting and made a, a, an interesting ethical argument. And I think that ethics is in a lot of ways at the core of what's happening in the books at this point. Mm-hmm. And what they've done in the adaptation is have the scene where the second Grop sees Hermione, they fall into this um, quite icky heteronormative mm-hmm. joke plot where he likes her because she is a girl. And so he picks her up and then she has to take this very firm like, Grop, you put me down. And then he does. And then he uh, like absolutely adorably gives her the handlebars to a bicycle that he's ripped in half. What it does is it replaces a narrative that is about the lack of universality and the struggle to connect across fundamental difference, mm-hmm. replaces that narrative with a story that's about universality and the right. fact that underneath we're all the same and the same that we are underneath is heterosexual. <sighs> yeah. That's what we are, right? That if you sort of strip away the barriers of difference, what remains is the fact that boys like girls and girls have to be stern and stop boys from touching them because that's their job. And the boys will like shyly offer gifts. And it's actually a pretty, a pretty gross normative depiction that I think 
is one of the few moments that stood out for me in the movie as a part of the adaptation that actually super misread the book. Mm-hmm. I am in super agreement that the inclusion of Grop uh, serves no purpose in this film adaptation and could have been cut out completely, especially because other than the point that Hannah is making about the, the value of difference. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence obliviate in five, four, three, two, one. The giants don't serve a purpose in the war between good and evil in these texts. They don't come back in the movies. You don't necessarily know what you will and will not want to include in like later movies. Sure, I get that. But the fact is that even in the texts themselves, they don't serve any kind of purpose. So this really was a plot that they could have just stripped out. And in that sense, they would have had to rewrite Hagrid's role. But why not? Like, why not? Why not just do that instead of having a kind of like badly CGI'd giant and that shitty heteronormative bicycle bell chiming interaction with Hermione. Like, I would have really preferred that. Yeah. My issues with adaptations are almost always not about faithfulness and are instead about the smartness or lack of smartness in the adaptation, right? Sometimes you see adaptations that have been unfaithful to the text but have captured the spirit Mm -hmm. in really interesting ways. Um, And I'm much more excited about those than ones that have been faithful to the text. You know, as in this case, keeping Grop in out of some, I think, miss judged faithfulness to the original story while i think missing the point of him and that's Mm -hmm. this is obviously because adaptation and interpretation are deeply intertwined and adaptation is always an interpretation and my issue here is you didn't interpret the story the way that i did but (laughs) i think that i interpreted it better so burn I, for one, find it comforting to be arbitrarily assigned an identity that will determine the course of the rest of my life. So let's head to the sorting ceremony and talk about casting, performances, and how goddamn thick Harry's neck is getting. Before we get deep into the casting, I want to say before I forget, I think that this is Daniel Radcliffe's best looking movie. His neck is getting thick, I agree, and it's like weird, but... He looks better in this movie than he does in any of the others. That's all I want to say. Good job, Daniel Radcliffe. You did a real good job looking good at 15. Yeah. I think this actually might be everybody's best looking movie. Rupert Grint? Yeah, I think he gets weirder looking after this. I think his hair gets longer. Yeah, no, he doesn't yeah it's strange. I think he's decent in this one. Emma Watson might get hotter with every movie yes. slash year of her life. Anyway, we're going to get around to talking about the sort of regular cast members but first we want to talk a little bit about um the new characters Mm -hmm. and their casting and i think we need to start with umbridge as portrayed by melda melda staunton she has an absolutely incredible like 14 middle names that are like griselda (laughs) that's not any of them but they're they're amazing look it up melda staunton who we realize we know from one episode of doctor who and from the um, incredible movie Vera Drake, where she provides women with illegal abortions. So I already love her. And I'm going to come out strongly on the side of her representation of Umbridge. Much like this movie as a whole, this is another one where I've really come around because I remember when I initially saw it, I didn't like her 
like the casting choice for Umbridge, I didn't think was satisfactory. But having just read the book and then having seen the film and her portrayal of the character, I think she does a magnificent job representing what Hannah describes as simpering feminine evil. Yeah, she's not like Umbridge in the books in a lot of ways, right? For one thing, she's not ugly. And that's sort of part of Umbridge in the books. Part of what makes people uncomfortable around her is that her body doesn't perform the femininity that her clothing and manner does so there's this Mm -hmm. disjunction a disjunction that's actually really really similar to the disjunction that makes people uncomfortable about um rita skeeter okay yeah yeah which is just another reminder of how fucking normative rolling is about gender sometimes Mm -hmm. that the way that she makes characters seem evil is the fact that their bodies look one way and they dress and behave (laughs) another way Mm -hmm. and it's like ooh, that's a little transphobic rolling But I think Staunton, as she represents Umbridge, the things that make her uncomfortable as a character aren't this sort of like toad-like ugliness. It's actually the way that she fully embodies the kind of normativity that is violent in this book, Mm. right? So it's about repression and order and proper gender roles and proper bodies, right? She wants students not to gather. She wants male and female students not to touch each other. She wants children to know their place, mm-hmm. right? That's a really important thing. But there's also that scene where she's, and this is written into the movie, she's measuring Flitwick's height, mm-hmm. which I actually think is a really smart addition because it just suggests that more generally the theme of her behavior is that she doesn't like anything that isn't acting correctly Mm -hmm. and her behavior is like sort of ruthlessly correct right Mm -hmm. from down to her dress and the books that she assigns in her classroom and the sort of authority that she manages and the way that beneath this sort of perfect correctness and perfect order there's sort of just this thread of sadistic violence that is sort of foundational for order, right? It's like not at odds with it. It's like that desire to have everything be just so has the sort of death drive Mm -hmm. underneath it. And that's actually a pretty smart reading of her as a character. There is this incredible scene in the film where she's got a whole room of students in detention writing lines with her sadistic cut into your hand quill. And she is clearly coming (gasps) she's like very obviously having a wicked strong orgasm while she's sitting in her chair observing all of these students being punished Mm -hmm. she's mega into it and it's it's such a satisfying representation you know i'm thinking of sort of the idea of death drive what's the opposite of death drive eros versus thanatos right sure do you know what i'm talking about the sort of freudian idea that all of us are divided between this this desire for sort of life and creation and this desire for death and destruction. So you don't mean like joie de vie. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't mean jouissance either, um, but I wish I did. But yeah, so there's this sort of problem that too much order tends towards the death drive. Mm-hmm. And there's some interesting work in queer theory that talks about the way that queer sex being non-reproductive sex 
is subversive and is uncomfortable because it undermines the connection between sexuality and eros and sort of links sexuality to thanatos in that it is non-reproductive. And so this idea of sort of queer and aberrant sexualities as having this sort of thanatos, this death drive line under them and the way that that really subverts what we expect Mm -hmm. from sort of proper, in quotation marks, obviously, human maturation, right? And then we have this image of this character who performs a sort of perverted over-the-top femininity Mm -hmm. the sort of spinster figure she's not fitting into the normative heterosexual order and then she's obviously getting this like erotic pleasure Mm -hmm. out of this suffering right which is directed specifically at children Mm -hmm. and refusing the sort of the forms of eros that the children embody Mm -hmm. i just find like it's fascinating. It reminds me of the types of stories that we hear about like the violence of old school Catholic schools mm-hmm. where nuns would execute incredibly violent punishments on mm-hmm. students. And and Umbridge seems to fulfill that kind of role, you know? The only pleasure that she seems able to take is yeah. the pleasure in discipline through punishment. Yeah. Yeah. But then the way that that's sexualized is really interesting. Right. And that accompanied with the pink, like the pink is doing something really subversive with gender. I think, I think she's great. I think she's fantastic. I just like her even more. I already liked her in the book. um, And I like her even more in the movie. I just think that the representation of her in the movie is a really smart, complicated one. Do you want to talk about Luna Lovegood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because we're not allowed to do research, I didn't re-look up where I had heard this. But I remember ages and ages ago, I had uh, seen or read an interview by the actress who plays Luna about how she was actually a fan. She was an avid reader of the Harry Potter series, and she was really, really into the character and so went to an open casting call and just was over the moon because she got the part. She wasn't actually an actor at the time. She was just a regular reader like you and me. And I know some people are not into her portrayal of Luna. And they are, again, they're different. Like the Luna in the books is different from the Luna in the films. But I think the Luna, her representation of Luna is great. She's very breezy and bubbly, but also weird. And I think she's not as creepy as the Luna that we encounter in the books. And that may be one of the things that people don't like about her, but she does have this very like dreamy, misty sort of, she like skips when she walks. It's great. I think she's wonderful. Yeah. I actually, I've heard that story as well. And uh, an additional dimension of it that I heard, and I'm not sure if this is apocryphal is that she'd been hospitalized with anorexia um, as a child. Mm -hmm. And that reading the Harry Potter books was part of her recovery experience. So that it was then sort of when she was in recovery that she went and applied for this role. Right. Which I also think is really, really interesting. Yeah. She loves pudding so much in this movie and like, good for you. Yes. We should all love pudding. And because what her character represents is a sort of radical refusal to be tamed by social expectations. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the kind of pressure that women experience that often leads to disordered eating 
But pudding, though, Hannah. I don't mean she also loves pudding, and they say talk about it all the time, and I think that's really beautiful. And it's not in the books. And a tiny part of me wonders if they wrote that in as part of a sort of nod to her. Anyway, I'm just writing fan fiction in my head now. But I think that she nails the most important thing about Luna, which is that Luna is somebody who is free because she doesn't give a fuck how weird people think she is. Yeah. Right? And that that even though sort of it takes a long time in the book for Harry to come around to it and he seems to actually like her pretty early on in the movie, yeah. that's sort of her role is the person who says, like, people are going to tell you that you're wrong and weird and they're going to be mean to you um, and that's fine. Fuck them all. You just do you. Yeah. Right? Seems to be sort of the moral of Luna Lovegood and that's like such an important moral in this book mm-hmm. when it's all about normativity and, and oppression mm-hmm. to just be like, no, whatever. Haters gonna hate. We we meet a few more members of the Order of the Phoenix, specifically Tonks and Kingsley Shacklebolt, um, who get like some screen time, but not much screen time, and don't become particularly developed or interesting. We should mention the like really weird moment when Dumbledore does his like excellent escape, and then the thing that they add into the movie is the really obnoxious sassy black man line where he's like, "You got to admit, Dumbledore's got style." And you're like, cool, yeah. Um, Kingsley Shacklebolt is like a really hardcore serious character. And there are very few characters of color in the series anyway. So maybe we could not just turn their filmic representations into stereotypes. I think we're feeling particularly attuned to the racial insensitivity of the movies right now. Because we just read, both read that excellent article somebody sent us about whether or not Hermione Granger is white. And embedded in that was the video that's just a super cut of every line that a person of color has in the entire movie franchise, which is six minutes long. Mm -hmm. And the entire first minute of it is Lee Jordan just commentating on Harry's first Quidditch match. And it's absolutely humiliating. You all need to watch it because when you actually see them all put together, you're like, oh, these characters don't have like a fucking moment. There's nothing. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. Like these are characters who are important in the books and they're just gone in the movies and seeing it all together and recognizing that they might still be on screen, but they never talk. Mm -hmm. And when they do talk, like there's nothing there. What occurred to me as I was watching it is that, you know, we have the Bechdel test to talk about representation of women, but we don't have a comparable test to talk about representation of people of color. There is one. Is there? Yeah, but I can't remember what it's called. And I'm going to chalk that up to my internalized racism. Like, I I don't remember what it is. Yeah, I certainly certainly don't encounter it being talked about in the same way, right? Um, And that if you thought, if you said of a movie... Is there a scene where two people of color have a conversation with each other that is not about the white protagonist? Every single one of these movies would fail humiliatingly mm-hmm. because when they talk, they're talking about Harry. Yeah. yeah. So that's not great. Um, we can move on from that. Just say neither of those characters get much and then talk about Bellatrix Lestrange. I fucking love Helena Bonham Carter. Authorial intention is not a thing that we're interested in, but there's always been this part of me that has felt like that role was written for Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah. Like, there's such a perfect match. She's like the logical extreme of what Umbridge would become if she was a little bit less uptight and was more, like, loose yeah. and free with her... Sadism? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if she was more loose and free with her sadism, she would be Bellatrix Lestrange. Yeah. I just think that she is beautifully mad. That, you know, she just has this absolutely complete 
unabashed commitment to being an over-the-top villain. Mm -hmm. And I think her, in that way, her and Rafe Fiennes are perfectly matched as villains because they are both doing this sort of beautifully campy, over-the-top villainy that would feel comic booky if it wasn't so sinister Mm -hmm. um that they're both they both do an amazing job of making this this over-the-top villainy still feel genuinely threatening Mm -hmm. and it feels like they are so over the top because they are both perfectly insane and that that level of disconnection from reality from any form of morality that we are familiar with makes them all the more frightening. I think one of my favorite things about what the films do with Bellatrix is just write out her useless husband. She, oh, yeah. Fuck I, I can't remember. <laughs> I don't even remember his first name, Mr. Lestrange. <laughs> Mr. Bellatrix. Mr. Bellatrix Lestrange, yeah. <laughs> um, because they're introduced to us as a pair when we read the books, but Bellatrix is such a strong and interesting and vicious character that there's no need for her less interesting spouse and you know we don't really get a lot from him in the books so the fact that he just doesn't exist in the movies is one of my favorite things about this adaptation i want to talk about lucius malfoy as part of this right so we've got an emerging cast of overriding villains right rather than sort of episodic villains we're starting to really see our main bad guys take shape so we've got Voldemort, who we'll talk about in a minute, and we've got Bellatrix, and then we've got Lucius Malfoy really coming into his own as a villain in this movie. Mm-hmm. And what I think is really beautiful about um, that particular portrayal is that his behavior has not changed in any noticeable way now that he is a straight-up villain, mm-hmm. right? And it really emphasizes how he has always... He has this, this really fantastic um, sort of sinister confidence Mm -hmm. which is that he is perfectly sure that he is right and 100 percent committed to what he is doing Mm -hmm. in a creepily sane way right like i think his sanity is every bit as unnerving as bellatrix's insanity which is that he's he's gone into this with open eyes he knows exactly what's going on he feels no need to be a hypocrite about who he is or what he believes because he believes that it's right Mm -hmm. and so he's continued to behave you know, how he feels he ought to, even after Voldemort was gone. And with Voldemort back and him adopting the mantle of the Death Eaters again, he just keeps acting exactly the same way mm-hmm. and treats everybody in exactly the same way. And the realization that he doesn't need to change his behavior then causes you to sort of go back and look at his behavior in the earlier movies and be like, oh man, like that whole time, he wasn't just a rich creep. Mm-hmm. He was like this person who fundamentally believed in his right to kill you if you did not fit into his world order, mm-hmm. right? Which is like, again, a nice exposure of that the kinds of really real hate and violence that sort of live underneath what we think of as a sort of snobbish surface, mm-hmm. right? That things like class difference might seem like they reside on the surface, but they're actually built upon a platform of like really profound violence. Mm-hmm. So going along with what you're saying, Hannah, but the portrayal of Lucius Malfoy, um, and I know that we've we've sort of gone away from adaptation, but this reminds me that one really like significant difference that is in this film is that when the Order of the Phoenix shows up, it's Lucius who drops the prophecy. Just trips. Uh, he just like trips, <laughs> falls, smashes the prophecy. And as much as we like love the fact that Neville accidentally kicks it with his dancing jimmy legs or whatever 
<laughs> in uh, in the book. That I think is maybe one of this movie's strongest changes that really sets up Lucius's downfall in the coming story. Spoilers. So I'm not going to talk about that anymore. All I'm going to say is that it sets up some important stuff and it is a phenomenal end to his triumphant evil. If you listen to our live episode or were there for our live episode, um, you notice that we were asked a couple of questions about Ginny Weasley. Um, one was whether or not we were satisfied with her portrayal in the movies. And another was how we would account for sort of the hatred of her within the fandom. Um, so I think we were also paying particular attention mm-hmm. to her as a character in this movie. And Marcel, you were saying that it really, what she's like in this movie really bears out Neil's theory about her. Yeah, it's too bad Neil isn't here. Oh. So Neil made the point that everything he knows and appreciates about Ginny Weasley as a character when he watches the movies, he remembers from the books. And we were talking about that when we were talking about her representation in this movie in particular. Well, like Hannah, you had said that she's she's pretty badass in this movie. And I was like, yeah, she is. But is she badass if you hadn't read the books? No, right? Like there's a couple of really cool scenes where Ginny sort of does a really cool spell. And you're like, oh, Ginny, you're such a badass. But as Marcel put it, if you don't know who she is then it's just like well that redhead girl just did a spell like there's just there's no context for her there's no richness to her character Mm -hmm. there's nothing to her other than at this point she is pretty good at magic even what we learn about her like when harry can't play quidditch and so Ginny ends up being brought in as seeker we and she's very good we learn a bit of backstory about Ginny about how like oh well yeah like she actually is a human being with like things that she does and a history and we don't we don't get that she kind of like is tagging along with them a little bit more than in previous movies but we don't entirely know why and she makes a sad face when Hermione says that Cho couldn't stop looking at Harry, but like we don't have any sense of like how or why that's significant. Yeah. Yeah. So she really just like kind of is there because she's going to be more important later. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, there's not much, there's not much going on. Yeah. It's just like a little foreshadowing. Like Jenny, don't worry, guys. Jenny will matter as a character when she becomes our protagonist's love interest. But until (laughs) then, until then, ain't nobody got time for that girl. Nope. Speaking of love interests for our protagonist. Talk a little bit about Gary Oldman. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Because because in this book, sort of the point of Sirius is that he is moody, self-pitying, petulant, frustrated. He loves Harry, but he treats Harry as a brother rather than a son. Um, He doesn't know how to treat him as a child properly. He's a really flawed character, right? Mm -hmm. He's disdainful towards Creature in a way that ultimately becomes his downfall. And what he is, Gary Oldman's portrayal of him in this movie, primarily focuses on interesting facial hair, Mm -hmm. a velvet-heavy wardrobe, Mm -hmm. and a lot of standing in doorways, sort of. He does a lot of gazing at Harry through doorways, right? So the first time we see him in the movie, Harry's just entered number 12 Grimmauld Place. Um, When Harry comes in, we have this shot framed that sort of you see everybody, all of the order in the room having this meeting. 
and the camera sort of closes in on Sirius and he sort of looks up and gazes at Harry and then it goes back to Harry and Harry sort of like gives him the smile and then the door closes, right? Like mm-hmm. it's this real like the love interests have just re-encountered each other. Mm-hmm. And the later scene where Harry's at it's at Christmas dinner mm-hmm. and everybody's raising a toast to Harry and then there's Sirius leaning in the doorway wearing definitely a red velvet smoking jacket, sort of ironically raising his glass to Harry. Like, there's all of the scenes with Sirius are basically about the fact that clearly he wanted to have sex with James. Mm -hmm. And because in his mind, Harry is James, Mm -hmm. he actually calls him James at one point. He just wants to have sex with Harry. So if we chalk this up to just a feature of the adaptation, basically what's happening is Gary Oldman is portraying this character as deeply in love with James Potter. That's like the backstory that we've got. And you know what? That's fine. Mm -hmm. It's a bit troubling because Harry is so young. It would be cooler if Harry was a little bit older. And then you could actually like have some not fraught homoerotic subtext but the fact that harry is his child like the fact that sirius is harry's legal guardian makes things a little bit complicated and makes it like less fun to be like yeah ooh, gary oldman's sex eyes you know like i think that's really fun but it's actually not if you think about (laughs) the reality of the fact that sirius is a 30 some odd year old man and harry is a 15 year old boy yeah Sirius is supposed to be a 30-some-year-old man. <laughs> Gary Oldman is. We we did the math. I did the math. There's actually some exciting sort of old-school um, subtraction happening on one of these pieces of paper. But uh, Gary Oldman was 49 when this movie was made. So that also – I think that portrayal could also have been interesting if they'd been a little closer in age. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that's very available as a subtext in the book that, totally. that he was – in love with James, um, his sort of disdain for Lily ties into that. And if he was actually in his mid thirties in this movie, I think a man in his mid thirties and a teenager, I, I'm all about age of consent. But that also would have been interesting in a different way than a 49 year old and a 15 year old, yeah. which is again just like a little creepy. But that's one way or another. That's what's happening. In this movie. (laughs) It's just, that's all that is happening with Sirius Black. At no point is Gary Oldman as Sirius gazing paternally at Harry. It's always lustfully. Every time. And if your father ever looked at you like that. Mm. mm -mm. Mm -mm. No. 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 (laughs) And I mean, mean, I get, like, I'm, I'm sympathetic because this is Daniel Radcliffe's, like, hot movie. Yeah. So, you know, fair. But, like, do a better job acting Gary Oldman. Yeah, and I also think that Gary Oldman, um, I mean, people have had issues with the casting of Gary Oldman, um, and I think that that's because Sirius is supposed to be sort of a classically good-looking character, right? The books talk about how handsome he is all the time, mm-hmm. which is interesting because the books are told from Harry's perspective. Um, and Gary Oldman doesn't have that sort of like classically good-looking um, dimension to him, but I think that... Gary Oldman is a really charismatic actor, and for a lot of people, he is a sex symbol. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you are not somebody who finds Gary Oldman sexy, then hearing people say that is always really like, what? Mm-hmm. I remember listening to an episode of The Flophouse about The Scarlet Letter and the choice mm-hmm. to cast Gary Oldman as a sort of romantic lead alongside Demi Moore. Mm-hmm. 
And all of the male hosts of the Flophouse are like, that's insane. Gary Oldman could not be less sexy. And then a couple of episodes later, they got a letter from a female listener being like, watching Gary Oldman in The Scarlet Letter was part of my sexual coming of age. Like, <laughs> you don't understand. And I think that part of what we're picking up on is the fact that Gary Oldman can lurk in the background wearing a velvet smoking jacket. And you're like, oh my God, everybody in the scene is about to have sex. Yeah. Yeah, not just lurk in the background with a velvet smoking jacket, but also with, like, inexplicable facial hair. Like a weird <laughs> mustache and pork chop sideburn. Chop. Yeah, mutton chop sideburns. Not pork. Pork chop sideburns are <laughs> not a thing. <laughs> Stop naming facial after meat. I can't keep track. Anyway, yeah, so Gary Oldman and his sex eyes. Okay. Good time. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So we have so many people to talk about. Let's do one sentence each for Ray Fiennes and Michael Gambon and Emma Thompson. Ray Fiennes, go. Everything about his physical body movements is terrifying and thus perfect. Michael Gambon. Too angry. Emma Thompson. Everybody go and watch the deleted scene that is a close-up of Emma Thompson watching Dolores Umbridge's opening speech in which she does a really bad job of eating pie. It is like a five-minute continuous shot of Emma Thompson improvising pie eating, and it is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Very well done. One sentence each. Brilliant. <laughs> Bravo. Okay, uh, so Harry, Ron, and Hermione, we're also going to talk about them. I have really nothing to say. I have nothing really good to say about Rupert Grint in this movie. I have nothing bad to say. I think he's fine. But that's that's all I've really got. All I think that happens with Hermione and Ron in this movie, the only thing the movie seems to be doing with them is foreshadowing their increasing romantic relationship, mm -hmm. just making it clear to you that they're trying to be really good friends while also going through puberty and increasingly want to fuck each other. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. When we were talking about this before we started recording, we both agreed that um, this is maybe Daniel Radcliffe's strongest movie so far. I mean, he's not he's not perfect, but again, he's like a fifteen year old actor, so like that's fine. But he does a really great job most of the time. And I was saying, in particular, all of the scenes where he seems to be in some way or another embodying the effects of Voldemort's claim on him. Mm -hmm are really compelling, like the kind of like weird twitchy neck things that he's doing. And in particular, in the final scene at the Ministry of Magic, when he's on the floor and Voldemort is supposed to be possessing him. In watching that, I actually forgot that that wasn't Ray Fiennes playing Harry and had to remember, oh, no, that's like actually Daniel Radcliffe, like acting. That's mm -hmm. that's great. Good job, yeah. Daniel Radcliffe. I'm yeah. very impressed. 
Yeah, he has a lot of really wonderful moments in this movie. My favorite moment, and it's one of those sort of what we increasingly see as classic Daniel Radcliffe-like bits, because you start to really get a sense of his sense of humor. And it's where he and Ron and Hermione are talking about him having kissed Cho, and Hermione says something about, like, how Harry's kissing is clearly competent enough not to have made Cho cry. And Harry gives her, like, this nod that's just like, yeah. Oh, it's just it's just this little moment and it's really beautiful mm-hmm. and i also really like the choices that he's made in terms of representing harry's sort of angriest yeah. movie mm-hmm. you know so the the point of this in large part is that harry is really mad and the madness is not shouty yeah. it's not all caps locks mm-hmm. it's a very sort of internalized still stagnating resentful anger and i think that he does a really convincing job of being really angry and really resentful without really raising his voice there's one moment when he yells and it's when he's in dumbledore's office Mm -hmm. and he yells at dumbledore like will you just look at me Mm -hmm. um and it's actually i thought a really powerful moment because he hasn't raised his voice yet in the movie so i think that this is the movie where you start to see that Daniel Radcliffe is becoming a really competent actor. So I have one final thing that I want to say. We don't have a Jew watch for our films. And the reason why we don't have a Jew watch for the films is because there are no Jews in the films. <laughs> um, people of color. Or ever. <laughs> I mean, we see them. <laughs> they just don't get to have real lines. So Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is the book that everybody is like, there's a Jew, so it's okay. That's not anti-Semitic. There is a real Jew who goes to Hogwarts. Anthony Goldstein does not appear in any of the films. One of our Twitter followers pointed that out to us, but like you can confirm this by watching the credits or by checking IMDb. There is no Anthony Goldstein. I find this fascinating because of the continued anti-Semitic assumption that Jews run the media. And so the fact that (laughs) the one Jewish character in the entire Harry Potter series does not even make an appearance in the movie version of the book where he's supposed to like reveal to us the religious diversity of Hogwarts. It's, I would like to pull this card out and all of you should as well. Anytime you hear anybody say anything about Jews running the media, I would like you to just remind whoever that idiot is that there are no Jews in any of the Harry Potter films. And if the Jews really did run the media, there would have been an Anthony Goldstein in this movie. Don't Jews just run the American media? Are you suggesting that Warner Brothers is not tied to American money? Suggesting that there's no British Jewish people. That's probably not correct yeah it's probably <laughs> i don't think that's true <laughs> probably a couple <laughs> like at least a few <laughs> i mean we like there's shylock so like historically there's a there was at least shylock and jessica yeah. um, but then jessica converted to christianity so maybe there's just one jew in all of the british empire but yeah No. (laughs) No, Hannah, that is incorrect. So there's nobody here to talk about camera angles, zooms, shot lengths, frames, but 
We can sure as hell talk about how bad those centaurs look. In Madame Malkin's Props for All Occasions, our take on sets, special effects, and the production of the Wizarding World. I don't know if you did this intentionally or not, but like talking about props and then talking immediately about centaurs really does bring to light how just prop-like these characters are. And as we talked about with the book, these are indigenized characters right and so the fact that they've been reduced to literal props in the movie when they come on screen in the end when they're all (laughs) forbidden forests um and they arrive on the screen and the music in the background is these like drums these sort of mysterious vaguely indigenous drums and both marcel and i were like (gasps) just like it's so racist um and there's also we watched one mini featurette before we realized how boring they were going to be and stopped (laughs) but the one feature thing that we watched behind the scenes thing was about the making of the neville's mimbleus mimbletonia yeah mimbletonia cactus thing and uh while the guy is talking he's surrounded by all of these props and most ostentatiously right next to him is a centaur head and it's just like, oh, yeah, they are not, Mm-mm. they are not people. Like, it might be a point of criticism of Umbridge that she refers to them as filthy half-breeds mm-hmm. and obviously a reestablishment of Hermione as the good white feminist that she's upset mm-hmm. and sympathetic when Umbridge starts to do violence to one of them. But the movie's actual treatment of them is no better than Umbridge's treatment of them. They're pretty parallel in the fact that these are, they are rejected as subhuman characters. Mm -hmm. That is a good summary. Why, thank you. (laughs) Let's talk about sweaters. (laughs) I have not much to say. I just want to point out that if you are looking for some like sweater spo, is that a thing? Why not? Like thin spo? (laughs) Except you don't want to be thin, you want to wear nice sweaters. Yeah. Just watch this movie for sweater spo. They're, okay, it's good sweaters. Your turn. <laughs> we got on this list. <laughs> Mechanized magic? No, you talk about that. I want to talk about the Ministry of Magic. Fine, I'll talk about this other thing really quickly. I just want to sort of bring back a theme that we've been tracing through the movies is the way that the movies represent magic. Um, and one of the complaints I remember Marcel having fairly early on is that the magic seems too mechanized. That was um, my complaint? It was your complaint. Specifically, you were talking about the way that they got into diagon alley right and the way that it feels really like the way that the bricks move feels really mechanical in this way that magic doesn't seem in the books Hmm. and that was in fact your complaint i mean Um, i believe you i've never re-listened to any of the episodes so i don't know what i say but every time we do an episode everything i've said just goes out into the world and then it leaves my brain forever that's beautiful and this was actually trevor's hi how are you doing complaint as we were watching the movie this afternoon that um when number 12 grimald place emerges Mm -hmm. it's a very mechanical process right it doesn't feel magical it feels like a cool trick lever that you pull and a building comes out and it's part of the larger sort of way the movie chooses to represent magic often as being a sort of mechanical operation Mm -hmm. rather than as being a sort of bending of time and space sometimes it's less is less satisfying 
I mean, I guess the effect would not have been as strong for a movie. But what I picture when I think about the way that secret unplottable locations like number 12 Grimald Place function in the story is that if you're a muggle or if you're a person and you don't know what you're looking for, you just don't see it. And then once you do know what you're looking for, then you do see it in the same way that like we do things like this as people all the time. You like miss something. It's like when you see something that's always been there and you're like, oh, is that has that picture always been on your wall? You're like, yeah, it has, but you've never noticed it before. And so it feels new. That's sort of how I imagine this magic functioning. But I get that that doesn't make for a very satisfying. And then Harry looked up again. And now there's a number 12. That could be done in a really interesting way if that's the choice that you made. Yeah. It's just not the choice that they made. Yeah. I think you could have done that well. Okay. I believe you. You have an excellent imagination. (laughs) We should also talk very quickly about the Ministry of Magic, which is... I would say splendid. I love the Ministry of Magic set. Um, All the black. Yeah, the shiny black. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, so the fountain doesn't doesn't really play a role in the film. And we, we miss a lot of those rooms and the things held within those rooms that the kids go through when they're trying to get too serious. But nevertheless, the way that the fireplaces function, the visitor's entrance through the telephone box at the very beginning, and then you enter into this like incredible palatial space with that huge poster of fudge blowing in the wind. It's so spectacular and spectacular in the sense of like, it's such a spectacle, right? And it's really designed to be a bit absurd and I, yeah. I just love it yeah it really is all of the scenes set in the ministry of magic are beautifully shot too right like there's a lot of wide shots and shots that really let you get a sense of the magnificence of the mm-hmm. space and and how exciting it is and it is it's one of the first sort of really exciting spaces i think that we've encountered or i guess it's the one like most of the movies have sort of one exciting thing that you get to see and this mm-hmm. is sort of this movie's exciting thing is is seeing the ministry of magic and once again expanding your view of what the wizarding world looks like yeah. um and that's really fun there was a moment when as we were entering into it for the first time marcel said oh is this the first time we've seen the ministry of magic and i was like i think the music is telling you that it is because <laughs> the music in the background is just like this is amazing <laughs> And uh, similarly, I really love the trial scene. Like, it's a very sort of deliberate, aestheticized scene in a way that not many of the scenes in these movies tend to be so artificially set up, Mm -hmm. right? And you've got all of these people dressed in these identical black and red outfits, and they're all sort of lined up, and then there's Harry in the middle, and the room is beautiful, right? These beautiful tiled floors, Mm -hmm. and there's just this incredible aerial shot at one point where you're seeing the room for the top and all of the the beautiful sort of hyper stylized symmetry really comes through mm-hmm. it's just really sort of treated the aesthetics of the space are given a lot of time and attention in a way that hogwarts isn't getting anymore right yeah. it might have gotten in some earlier movies particularly obviously in the third one mm-hmm. but there's not much time spent reminding you of how beautiful Hogwarts is. At this mm-hmm. point, most of the scenes in Hogwarts are really like, oh, you know the space by now, mm-hmm. right? You've already been in all of these rooms. Here's one quick establishing shot to let you know that you're back inside the castle and now mm-hmm. we're just going to go back to these spaces you already know. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Ministry of Magic is like, it's this new space and the camera's really excited about the fact that it's a new space. 
because we're done fetishizing the grandeur of Hogwarts, Mm -hmm. now what the movie is doing is sort of getting into the details of the spaces, right? And so we spend more time in the Gryffindor common room, not necessarily more time in a literal sense, but we spend more... The time that we spend there is a little bit more intimate, I think. More Um, textured? It's more textured. Yeah, that's a good way to word it. So we hear them playing like rock music in the background. We see them like hanging out and playing games. Some Some of the deleted scenes involve a couple making out on a set of stairs, which is like, cool, great. <laughs> that's that's yeah. probably happening. Mm-hmm. And we teens, get unsupervised teens. Yeah, unsupervised teens are going to make out. That's I'm guessing that, you know, considering that opposite sexes cannot get into each other's rooms, they're probably just fucking in the common room. Naturally. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you? So if Marcel was excited about the Ministry of Magic, I was excited about the representation of print culture. Because <laughs> nerds gonna nerd. This is a movie that is really obsessed with print mm-hmm. um, and is really obsessed with, for one thing, with the power of print mm-hmm. and with um, how important it is to the ongoing restructuring of reality and of the world that we live in. And because it's so interested in print, it's equally takes a great deal of care with the design of all of its print artifacts and they're beautiful it's such an exciting movie if you're into like typography so like early on umbridge is handing out these textbooks which are these beginner guides to magic and there are these sort of beautiful nods to 1950s early british readers mm-hmm. um and just like everything about the design of those books is very satisfying but then the edicts the, the, decrees. the decrees that are getting put up that are framed, right? These just mm-hmm. these print objects that are framed and hung on the wall and are like speech acts, except mm-hmm. that they're print acts. And it's the typography that gives them power, right? Because they all reproduce exactly the same aesthetic. They have Umbridge's symbol as mm-hmm. the Inquisitor. They have the stamp of the ministry, And they're put in these frames and they're put up on the wall and now they are Mm -hmm. sort of this powerful force. One of the really cool things about that is that they're put up without magic, right? So Mm -hmm. Filch actually gets up there with like a rickety, shitty old ladder and and a hammer and a nail and nails them into the wall. And I think Mm -hmm. that that really reflects the tactile and material nature of them. I mean, I'm sure that Umbridge, if she wanted to, could just like... just like cast a spell and like shoot that shit up on the wall. But instead it has this like really, um, this really effective materiality to it that I think is wonderful. Yeah. And not only are they being put up, but every time a new one goes up, we get the super close up Mm -hmm. of the nail going into the stone wall, right? All of that materiality is really vital. And similarly, we see so many newspapers, Mm -hmm. right? So many cutscenes are, all about sort of the showing us what's happening in the newspaper. There's tons of montages. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a movie that is about representation and misrepresentation mm-hmm. and the power that the kinds of stories we tell have over the reality of the world that we live in. And it just, the camera is so, spends so much time on looking at newspapers, right? And that's also just very exciting and cool to see the way that a film would be so concerned with print. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the most impressive 
special effects that I think they use when they're at the Ministry of Magic is the the smoke in which the Death Eaters appear and disappear. It almost transitions from material to immaterial in such a luxurious kind of way. It's so silky. It and silky. it is. It's really silky, right? And then when the Order of the Phoenix shows up, they have this like brilliant white version of the same thing. So the reason I wanted to bring it up is because I, it does make me a little bit uncomfortable with the whole like black is evil, white is good motif. I think that that's not super exciting. And maybe like I get that the Death Eaters wear black cloaks, but I really one of the things I really like about the series is that the series renders green as evil. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think I would have liked it if it was like a dark green more than just falling into the like black is bad trope, white is good trope. Yeah. Could have been cool if the Order of the Phoenix showed up with like gold smoke, but it was yeah. it was very beautiful, a little tropey. It was a little tropey is a great <laughs> turn of phrase. Again, the production design in all of those final scenes, very exciting, right? Like mm-hmm. the representation of the Department of Mysteries, yeah. beautifully done. The camera shots in that scene where they're fighting, where they're running up and down the aisles, like that's a genuinely sort of tense, exciting scene. The showdown is beautifully shot. The final scene between Voldemort and Dumbledore is really exciting and the the special effects with their magic I found I found really exciting, right? And I feel like in a lot of ways this movie stepped up its game Mm -hmm. in representing magic in a way that is coherent Mm -hmm. um and that makes sense and that that raises the stakes right you have a sense you know in the showdown between Dumbledore and Voldemort without anybody having to say anything you get a very clear sense of two very powerful wizards Mm -hmm. challenging each other sort of raising the stakes in a variety of ways Mm -hmm. and that that was a totally dialogueless scene that is so exciting to watch because there's logic to the magic mm. within it in a way that there hasn't been really not really not consistently in previous in previous movies i have to say knowing now that this is the first of david yates directed adaptations and having been quite disappointed by the first four i'm feeling excited mm-hmm. to rewatch the rest of them because I feel more now like I'm in the hands of somebody who like knows how to make an adaptation and like has a sense of how movies work. Yeah, we we looked up the director of the fourth movie, which we all agreed was terrible. Mm-hmm. And that director also made a bunch of other terrible movies. So it's not surprising. Yeah, like <laughs> Prince of Persia. Prince of Persia and Four Weddings and a Funeral, yeah. which is like some of you are going to be like, no, I love that movie. No, watch no, it again. Yeah. It's terrible. It's a terrible movie. You're incorrect. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to episode 10, the real episode 10, of Which Please. All of our previous episodes are available on our website, ohwhichplease.ca, that's ohwhichplease.ca, and on iTunes and other podcatchers. I didn't know that other things were called podcatchers. It's like a general term for any app that lets you pick up the RSS feeds from podcasts and then watch them. There are so many things that I learn when we do these episodes. Also, you don't watch podcasts. I just said watch them. <laughs> anyway. Well, hmm. Why don't you drop us a rating or a review while you are downloading our podcast? M.W. Boyce did, and we think that's pretty cool. 
Don't forget to check out our Tumblr, ohwitchplease.tumblr.com, ably curated by Jason Purcell. And, of course, as always, extra special thanks to our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? We are looming ever closer to the magical 500 followers on Twitter, and I'm pretty sure every one of those people is actively tweeting at us. (laughs) So make yourselves comfortable as I shower some love on all y'all. Special thanks to Q Rainbow Warrior, Terry Lee McGarry, Nemals Winter, Andrew Bretz 001, Karina Soros, Mel Dalglish, S. Galletley, Broken Tape Deck, Bookish Spoonie, Neil Politan, Sophie Biblio, Lost Ghost, Chrissy Pajamas, Ms. Megan, Bizameo, that's a guess, Noah Potter, Basma Amin, It's Just Roar, M.W. Boyce, Surinoth, Great Dane Yo-Yo, Basil, Lindsay Cedar, Gig Hearts, Mystic Warrior, Pewter Wolf 13, Duchess Cadbury, Aaron Emily Ann, Queer Miss Lupin, winner for greatest Twitter name, Kristen Morin, quick side note, Ashtown 1990, I sure hope that's not the year you were born, Debbie Kinsey, Tickled Lemonade, Matt Domville, Alan Matley, Uterps Delight, Katie Hasenbank, Reganomics, JV Purcell, uh, Liba Jen, Saber Moon, Emily Hoven, Alicia Ardeline, Dottie and Ginger, Page versus Reality, Richard Academic, My Book Jacket, oh, I don't even know with this one, Phalangiumo, Denise Carlson, Book Vacuum, Keeping Heather, Books P and Q, Mother Fungus, J. Kate B, Anakin Haga, Holly Dunn Design, Physics Katie, Into Sisa, K. Malosh 2, Vic Jones, Smaraquia, I Can So Do Random, Taste of Theater, L. M. Schmidt 42, Rich Kale, Plump Pucker, And there might have been more, but my computer ran out of ink, so I can't go on. You're incredible, and collectively we are writing a fucking dissertation on Harry Potter, so keep it up. Thanks also to everyone who came out to our live show, and welcome to all our new listeners. We have another live show coming up in January, so stay tuned for news about that. Things are likely to get a little bit interesting for the next few episodes as Marcel heads off on podcast maternity leave and I try to figure out how to edit and upload episodes. But fear not, Marcel will be back one day with a brand new coven member in tow. But until then, later witches! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.